Hey, this is Dan Kogan. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Family in Pleasant Hill, Missouri, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today and let you know you matter to us because you matter to God. Enjoy the message. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark's Gospel. Uh, first, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10. And, we're going to, and like we have been the last few weeks, we're going to be looking at several different passages as we look at the lives of the disciples together. But let's begin with Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel. And um, we're going to look at chapter 10. Just one quick verse, a little explanation of who these disciples are. In Mark chapter 10, there's a listing of the disciples, as there is in many places. And they're always listed, as we said, in the same basically the same order. But in Mark chapter 10, something unusual is listed about uh, James and John. But let's look at chapter 10 and verse, excuse me, Mark chapter 3. I got ahead of myself. Mark chapter 3. 3 comes before 10, doesn't it? In Mark chapter 3, and we'll look at verse, just one verse as we start this morning, chapter 17. What Mark is doing is listing the 12 apostles. He begins that in verse 13. And then by the time he gets to 17, he lists James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, to whom Jesus gave the name, the sons of thunder. Father, we thank you for the worship that we've already experienced today. We thank you for the music that we've been able to hear and for the songs that we've been able to sing. We thank you for the children that have gathered with us and for those who are taking care of them and teaching them even at this hour. And Lord, wherever the gospel's preached here in Pleasant Hill and across this region and this country and around the globe this morning, we are thankful for that and we are a part of that. And we ask that your word go out and have a tremendous impact on the lives of people. But for those of us in this room, open our ears and our eyes. You're here. You're among us. You're present. You're with us. Lord, we need to see you and hear you and experience you in all your power and all your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at the lives of the disciples. And we started out with Peter and then Andrew. And remember we said that in, in, in the, and I'm, I'm going to repeat this every week just about because I want you to know it and that's how you'll learn it. That's how I learned it. Jesus' earthly ministry was about three years. Remember, the first 18 months was more or less focused on the public and the last 18 months was more or less focused on those 12 disciples. And that the call of the disciples was a, was a progression. First, there was a call to conversion, that they understood who Jesus was. But then later on, there was a call to leave everything behind and follow him. And then there was a call to an apostleship, to truly be the ones who would go and tell. And then finally, a call really to martyrdom, to give their life. And so there's a progression in that. And we said, too, that if we were going to pick 12 men upon whom we were going to invest 18 months of our life and all that's so important that Jesus did, we would pick 12 of the, 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 the real A-type leaders. Uh, you wonder if I'm going to take a drink of this, aren't you? Yeah, that's good. Got a little sore, scratchy throat, so stay away this morning. 
you would think that we would pick the 12 A-type leaders, but, but really what God did is what he does with us. He, he knits together a very unusual group of different personalities and different giftedness, and when they all come together under the authority, the lordship of Jesus Christ, there's a wonderful body of Christ. And when, when Paul talks about the church later on in the New Testament, he talks about the hand and the feet and the eye, and we're all different. And you see that in his disciples. They're all very different. But there is a, a grouping. There's always the first four, which is Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and then the second four, and then the third four. And the first four are more, more closely connected and spend more time with Jesus than the second four and the third four. It's not because he loved them more. It really has to do with the fact that, that he poured his life. There's a certain num- number of people you can really pour your life into at, with, with, uh, with that time frame. And so he, he really poured his life. And there's, there's a lesson for us, especially as pastors, as leaders, as, as Christians, to realize we ought to always be in a close proximity with three or four other believers sharing life together and growing together. But in this first four, there's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And we talked about Peter in every list of the disciples, everywhere. Peter is the one who is listed first. As we said, the first to speak and the first to act. And, and he is, he's the one that Jesus calls the rock. And then the, the two, bro- and then Peter's brother Andrew. We talked about him last week. You know, we 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 he's he's uh, always known as Peter's brother. We just like we said last week that Cooper is always known as as uh, as Peyton's brother. So you know that's how he's identified. That's uh, that's football. <laughs> and then we talk, but tonight, this afternoon rather, or this morning, we're not going to be here that long. We're going to talk about James. So Peter, Andrew. James, and then next week, or the week after, John. But today, James. And I'm going to preach a sermon on somebody that almost nothing is spoken of. He he has almost no dialogue. Peter has a lot of dialogue with Jesus. John has a lot of dialogue with Jesus. There are several stories of Andrew that we talked about last week where he brought the little boy who had the loaves and fishes. He brought the, the Greeks who wanted to see Jesus. He brought Peter, his brother. But here we get to James, and there's very little about James in the New Testament, except there's one thing about James that's not spoken of of any of the other disciples, and so we'll take a look at that this morning. But first of all, James is the older brother of John, because his name is always listed first. It's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And they're the only disciples where that's really made known, that they're the sons of someone like that, of Zebedee. And Zebedee apparently was, a, was an influential, if not perhaps even somewhat successful and wealthy, fisherman in Galilee. He had other people. He hired other people. And later on, when Peter wants to go to the, the house of the high priest, the courtyard of the high priest, when Jesus has been arrested... Peter is allowed inside the courtyard of the high priest because James and John, their family, have a relationship with the high priest. And many biblical historians believe that, that perhaps Zebedee was from the tribe of the Levites. In other words, here's what we're saying. James and John were from an influential family who had connections and probably had some degree of wealth in economy. And James is the older one. So maybe you would think that if you're going to have 
four sort of four sort of inner circle disciples. Well, if, if Zebedee's sons are perhaps the most influential in the region, he, he's an influential man. He knows the high priest, and James is the oldest son. You might think it would be James, John, Peter, Andrew, <laughs> but it's not. And I think it's really important for us to understand that, that God has very unique purposes and very unique places for all of us. And while it may seem that perhaps James is the older brother of a wealthy or wealthier and more influential family, he's not listed as the, the lead. He's not the first one listed. It's Andrew, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And even between James and John, look at how much we know about John. How much is written about him He's the beloved disciple. He's the one that Jesus gives uh, relationship to, to, has this wonderful close relationship to, so that when Jesus is dying on the cross, he provides the care of his mother to John. We don't see that with James. So there's, there's this James. Here he is. Who is he? As I said, of the four that's listed as the first four, we really have less about James than any of the others. But he is an apostle that we have one thing about that we don't have about any of the others. The sons of thunder. Well, you know, there's no way around that. When Jesus, when they were rather referred to that, it, it is a nickname, and obviously... You can fill that in. It sounds like a tag team wrestling match, actually. I mean, it's, these, were, these were guys who were not passive. They were not quiet. They were not shy. They were bold, big men. And that they were the sons of thunder. And we'll see that in them as we look at some stories. Because the couple of stories we do have about James, it's he and his brother together. So we're going to look at those this morning. And we started to uh, talk about one when I talked about... Uh, Mark chapter 10. So go over now, if you would, to, to Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, again listed there, acknowledged, these are people of some influence, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? In verse 37, they said to him, Grant to, said, said to, him, Grant to us to sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. So here's one of the things we have of them. And in another passage of Scripture, their mother actually intercedes on their behalf. And James and John's mother is one of the women who travels with Jesus and probably helps prepare the meals and maybe even funds some of his ministry. And so there's this talk about Jesus setting up an earthly kingdom and, and James and John come to him and they go, well, listen, we want to get our request in first, all right? We, we would like to be, be sitting one on your left and one on your right. We want, we want to have the positions of prominence when your kingdom comes here on earth. So we see in them a sense almost of entitlement. That we are the sons of Zebedee, we are the sons of thunder, we're already in your inner circle. We just want to get this nailed down. Probably, not probably, obviously, because it's written in other places in the scripture, the disciples have been talking about who's going to be the greatest, right? Now, I know none of us in this room ever compare ourselves to anybody else. None of us in this room ever look at ourselves and wonder if we're better than them or they're better than us or they've achieved more or where we're going to be in success and all of those things. It's amazing how much emphasis we place on little things about position and, 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 and how people look at us. 
And yet there is Jesus right there among them. And he's all they need. He is all their joy. He is all their satisfaction. But all they can think about is who's going to be on the right, who's going to be on the left. You know, we don't, we'll leave that one up to you, but we, we know that we're the sons of thunder. We're the sons of Zebedee. One of us on your right, one of us. These other guys are great, but they don't rise to that level. And that's a very human kind of instinct that all of us in our flesh have. We all compare ourselves to others. We all want to be better. We're all competitive. Some of us far more competitive than others. And certainly I would imagine of all the disciples we can see here, James and John are probably among the most competitive. And they want these great, wonderful positions. As I said, there's a whole sermon you can preach about their mother who comes and on their behalf asks that they sit one on the right and one on the left. And you know, when you think about that, think about the upbringing they had. <laughs> Here's the mom, other than some parents who might say, you're not going to ever amount to anything. <laughs> you know, I, how are you ever going to achieve that? This is a mother who believes her two boys are the best and they should have the best. And so that's been in them and that's how they've been brought up. And so there is that sense of, of entitlement that we're the best, that we can do anything, we can achieve anything. And at least we really condemn James and John's mother for sort of making this bold request to Jesus. On the other hand, you, you can almost affirm her. She didn't know what she was really saying, but you, you can affirm her, can you not? And that she believed in her son. She knew they could be successful and that they were grown, had grown up in that environment. And that's a healthy environment for them. But here we see it expressed in a rather unhealthy way where they're thinking in terms of who gets the office in the corner with the biggest windows? You know, who gets, who gets the most prestige? And I, if I was talking to a room of pastors, I'd say, you guys do that all the time. You compare the size of your congregation. You compare the impact of your ministry. You compare, and, and so that still kind of goes on. And it seems so silly when we look at that, we go, what difference does it make? You're all going to be in glory. It's Jesus that matters. But from their human perspective at that point, they were very concerned about where they stacked up. And Jesus deals with that very plainly here in verse 38. Let us, one set on your right hand, one set on your left. Let's just nail this down so Peter and Andrew uh, know their place. <laughs> so, so we know, we just want to know, you know, we just want to know that when it all happens, we're there. We're number one and number two. And Jesus said to them in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the cup with the baptism, rather, which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism, which I am baptized, you will be baptized. To sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those it has been prepared. Jesus is basically saying, you really don't know what you're asking. You want to be great in my kingdom. You, 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 you don't understand the suffering, the pain, the struggle. And he said, it's already been decided. But this, verse 41. But when the other ten heard it, <laughs> they began to be indignant. <laughs> 
said James and John. And it goes on from there. So it caused a problem with the 12 because they were sort of doing an end around trying to position themselves. So that's kind of what we know there about, about James. He, he's, he and his brother John believe they're a little bit superior to everybody else. They're, they're, they're bold and brash. Their mother has always believed in them. Their father has some degree of wealth and, and influence, certainly, perhaps more than any other disciples. And so because of that, they believe they should have some entitlement. Now, I know there aren't any members of any churches who believe they're more entitled to anything else than anybody else because of what they've done in the church for all these years. How hard they've worked, who they are, what they've given. You hear, before you just jump all over James and John and go, that's terrible, sit back for a minute and ask yourself, how do you view yourself? You say, you know, I, I, I ought to really be heard more than others because I've done more than others, or I give more than others, or I work more than others. You know, I've, I've had in my work as a transitional pastor, which this is not a transitional pastor. This is a, this is a wonderful, sweet, preaching, teaching pastorate until you receive the pastor God's called you. But when I've done transitional pastor, that means churches that are terribly dysfunctional that need to be made right. And when I do that, we have to make some hard decisions sometimes. And invariably, I have had people say to me, you know who gives the money around here? I've had that every, every one of these, trans- every one. You know these decisions you guys are making. You know who gives the money around here? It's like, really? You think, you think you're entitled to something more because of what you give or, or who you are or or who your parents were, or your relate, how long you've been a member, or I've been a charter member of this church. That's not unlike James and John saying, look, it's pretty obvious we're the sons of Zebedee. It's pretty obvious we're in the inner circle. It's pretty obvious we have the most influence. So it just seems obvious that one of us would be on your right hand, one of us would be on your left hand. Jesus is saying, you have no idea what you're asking for. You really want to follow me Later on, he tells the crowd, you take up your cross daily and follow me. And your cross is an instrument of pain and suffering and death. But we'll get to that. Hold that thought. Don't leave. Don't check out on me because we'll get back to it in a minute. The other story we see about James and John that we're going to talk about. The only other story we see about James in, in the scripture really is found a very unusual story in Luke's gospel chapter 9. So turn over to Luke chapter 9. And actually, if you want to just, just so we can um, double up here, if you go to verse 46 of Luke chapter 9, an argument arose among them as to who was the greatest. So they, they're always arguing about this, by the way. Anyway, verse 51 of Luke 9 Now, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem because he realizes it's the end and it's about time for these things to come past. So he's leaving, he's leaving northern, the northern area of Israel. He's going to go to Jerusalem. Now, most, the the quickest route was right through Samaria, but most Jews would have gone around it. 
Samaria, remember, was that place that, that, that we'll talk here about it in a little bit, but it was the place that when, when the, the, the Jews were carried off into Babylonian captivity, the ones that remained, some of them intermarried with pagans, and it's sort of a mixed religion. It, they're, they're not really Jewish, they're not really Gentiles, and, and they don't worship in Jerusalem, they worship in a mountain there in Samaria, and the Jews despise them, think they're filthy, think they're, 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 they're degenerate, think they're, they're false, and, and because of that, the Samaritans despise the Jews, thinking that they are elitist and arrogant, and they, they, they absolutely hate each other. I mean, there's cultural hatred that is, goes back for generations, as I said, so much that many times Jews would walk around, go a long way around Samaria. And when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, you have to make disciples in my name in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And when we hear that, we think he's just naming places, but he's not. Jerusalem means here where you live. Judea means the area beyond that. And the rest of the world means, well, the rest of the world. So why does he name Samaria? Because Samaria is the place across the street that you wish wasn't there. It's the people you don't like. And it's the people who don't like you. And Jesus says you have to make disciples even in Samaria. And he sat down with a Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and was living in adultery. You remember that story. And so he's going through Samaria again. <laughs> and this time his face is set on Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem. And verse 52, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation. Again, it's, it's not just Jesus and the twelve. It, there's, there's a group that follow him, some, some women who help with the food, other people who are just listening to his teaching. And so they go from town to town. And, and as we talked about and and we'll talk about when we talk about Philip. He was probably the one who went in and bought the food. Judas was the one who carried the money. And so they go into this little village to make preparations because this group, Jesus and his followers, are about to come. But the people, verse 33, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Here's what happened. They know Jesus is coming. In this little Samaritan town. But he's coming not to worship in Samaria, on the mountain where they worship. He's just passing through to go to Jerusalem. So this little Samaritan town says, well, you know what? You can just keep passing through. <laughs> we're not going to give you any food. We're not going to give you any place to stay. If you don't think we're good enough to worship here, and you're one of those who's going to worship only in Jerusalem, well, then just head on to Jerusalem. verse 54. And when his disciples, not all 12 of them, the two of them, who? James and John. James is always listed first. He's obviously the older brother. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, I, you know, for people who live in Pleasant Hill in 2019, that seems like a pretty strange request. I mean, you know, couldn't we just do something else, you know? Couldn't we just scare them a little bit? I mean, what do you got to call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Well, there's a reason. And the reason is found in the book of 2 Kings. So if, if you have your Bibles, it would be worthwhile to go to 2 Kings. If you need to look in the, in, the in, in the index to find it, look in the index. But in the book of 2 Kings and chapter 1... This is the same region where the disciples were, where this story takes place. 
Now just listen to me, and I'll try to... It's important. After the death of Ahab, Moab, that area, rebelled against Israel. That's verse 1. And basically what happens is that area has a king that doesn't believe in God anymore. And Elisha is the prophet. And Elisha is confronting this king with his false teaching and his false religion. And so Elisha sent messengers. Verse 4, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah is giving a prophetic message to the king, you're, you're going to die. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There's a man to meet us. And he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus saith the Lord. It is because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron? In other words, why are you looking to these false gods? Now, this is the same general area where the disciples are. And then they, and they, these messengers came back to the king and said, this man who met us told us that basically you're going to die. So verse 7, he said, well, what kind of man came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered, and this is how they described the prophet. They said, <laughs> they described Elijah. Well, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And it was Elisha, the Tishbite. So then, verse 9, the king, say with me, the king sent to him a captain of 50 men. So there's 50 soldiers headed out there. And he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. In other words, you're in some real trouble. All right? But Elijah answered the captain of 50 and said, if I am a man of God. Then let fire come down from heaven and consume your 50. And the fire came down from heaven and consumed the captain and his 50. So you see what's happening. James and John know the Old Testament. They know this story. That, they were, that the king then was worshiping a false god. And, and Elisha called him on it. And he wouldn't repent of it. And so, Elisha called, God sent fire down from heaven to consume the, the soldiers, all 50 of them, and the captain. But if you like a good story, it's not over yet. Verse 11, and the king sent him another 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elisha said, well, all right, if I am a man of God... Then let the fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then the fire came down from God and from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Well, that's not enough. Verse 13. And again, the king sent the captain of the third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, said, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Verse 14, behold, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of the 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. So the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid. So he went down with him to the king. See, when this 50, when they bowed down to Elijah and said, have mercy on us, then Elijah took those 50. They went to the king. Long story short, 
We told the king he was going to die. And guess what happened? He died. So that's the context. So in a way, we look at James and John. I don't want you to see them as just kind of lunatics who go, let's just burn up people. What they're saying is they're making a connection to this story in 2 Kings. And they're saying, these people hundreds of years ago rejected God, and now they're rejecting. And so Elijah had fire. But here's the problem. It's the same, listen, it's the same problem they had in the earlier story. In the earlier story, they felt entitled to be first and second. In this story, they do not say, Lord, would you call fire down from heaven? What do they say? Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven? They already saw themselves as Elijah, for goodness sakes. It's amazing how sometimes we want to do God's work for him. I had a great old preacher friend named Wilbur Noble. Wilbur was fifth grade education, Topeka, Kansas. Planted churches all across Kansas just common sense country preacher, all right? Wilbur used to always say, it's a, he had a little high-pitched voice. He'd say, it's a good thing I'm not God, or a lot of you folks would be dead. That's what he'd say. <laughs> well, it's the same thing with, with James and John. Who are we to say, right? But they thought they could. These people ought to die. And they sort of had some scriptural basis for it. They were going back to that story and Second Kings, but they were not asking Jesus, right? They were wanting to do it themselves. I mean, don't we all want to, first of all, don't we all want to be first in everything? Don't, don't we want to be better than everybody else? And secondly, don't we want to get back at people we don't like and people who don't like us? Well, that's James and John. Yep, that's the inner four right there. You're going, it is not looking too good for the church right now. These these two have followed Jesus around for months and all they can do is with the other ten fuss about who's going to be the greatest and then want to get back at people who snubbed them and want to get back at them in a really vengeful way and to place themselves really in the same position of Elijah. And remember, all of that that happened with Elijah was not Elijah's doing. That was God speaking to Elijah, telling him what to do. The reason churches get into so much trouble, the reason you and I as believers get our life so messed up is we do what we think we, we do what we want to do and then we ask God to bless it. We do what we would like to have happen and then we ask God to bless it rather than to see what God would have us to do. And Jesus made it abundantly clear in that passage with them that he was not going to call down fire from heaven. If you look at the story again, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 9. Listen to what happens after they make that request to call down fire from heaven. And when his disciples said, Lord, you must have called down fire from heaven, verse 55, but he turned and rebuked who? Did he rebuke, listen, did he rebuke the people who had um, ignored him and Did he rebuke the Samaritans who had insulted him? No. He rebuked James and John. And what did they do? They just went to another village that would receive them. Because this time, Jesus didn't come to judge. He came to save. 
There'll come a time, again, when he comes to judge. But this is not the time. This time, he came to save. And you know, it had to frustrate James and John a little bit. I mean, they listen, they went way out there on that limb and Jesus sawed it off, right? Hey, you want us to call down fire from heaven? And he turned and rebuked them publicly in front of everybody. No. We're just going to go to another village. It'll be all right. You know, in Acts chapter 4, a wonderful story that maybe you're not terribly aware of, but it goes with this. In Acts chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. This is years later. Jesus has been dead, buried, risen, ascended into heaven. The disciples have been sent. And Philip, right? We're going to talk about him later. Now those who were scattered about preaching the word, Philip went down into the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what he was saying. And when they heard him and saw the signs he did... For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Verse 8. Verse 8. Verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. There was another. Jesus had another plan for Samaria. And it wasn't to consume them by fire. It was that eventually Philip would return to that place. And they would hear the gospel. And they would respond. And there would be much joy. Jesus' plan for your life, for your family, for your church is always better than ours. Ours is reactionary. Ours is almost always focused on ourselves. It would have made John and James feel so much better and so proud and so powerful to just burn these people up like Elijah had done with the captains and the 50 men. But Jesus had other plans in mind. So those are the stories. So we think, what happened to James? Those are the only... No. I told you when we began this message, there was one thing about James that's recorded that's not recorded about any of the other 12. In Acts chapter 12. So if you want to turn there. Acts chapter 12. Verse 1. Jesus has been crucified, buried, risen. He's spent time with the disciples after his resurrection. He's been seen by hundreds of people. Uh, The Holy Spirit has arrived. The day of Pentecost came and 3,000 souls were saved. The church is being established. And so now we pick it up with Acts chapter 12, verse 1. And about that time, Herod the king, and this is not Herod Antipas who killed John the Baptist. This is his nephew, Herod Agrippa. About the time, Herod Agrippa, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Verse 2. And he killed James, the brother of John, by the sword. Which means he was beheaded. And when he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now later on in verse 6, Peter's rescued. But James isn't. 
You remember James said, I want to be the greatest? And Jesus said, you, you don't know what that means. If you're going to be the greatest, you're going to suffer. James is the first of the disciples to be killed. And he's the only one of the twelve whose death is recorded in Scripture. So why do you think Herod Agrippa chose James? Well, apparently, by the time Jesus was dead, buried, raised, and the church is established, they're looking to James. Apparently, he's learned a lot in the time he spent with Jesus. Apparently, he's no longer a disciple who tries to vie for position and achievement. He's no longer a disciple who tries to to put down and destroy his enemies. Apparently, now he's a disciple who reflects, listen, who reflects Jesus in such a way that he's a threat to the very king. Isn't that awesome? I don't care how messed up we might be. I don't care how bad we've been in the past. I don't care how many times we've failed. If we will stay with Jesus and we will follow him, he can change us. He can mold us. He can sanctify us. We can end a whole lot better than we began. And that's the glory of it all. And so when we look at these stories of the disciples, you understand they're not perfect from the day they start following Jesus. And guess what? Neither am I and neither are you. There's a progression of more we follow him, the more we learn from him. There's rebuke that has to take place. There's disappointment that takes place. There's suffering that takes place. But all of it to make us more like him and to make us more loving and caring and compassionate and give us a joy that comes even when it comes to tremendous difficulty and adversity. And the James we see here at the end is not the James we see at the beginning. It's not in the scripture, but it is in church history. Clement of Alexandria, who wrote much church history, says this about the execution of James. Excuse me. You be, you, you be, you be, I can't pronounce it. Thank you. I just lost it. Eusebius, I'm sorry. The church historian passes on the account of James' death. It came from Clement of Alexandria. Clement says this. The one who led James to the place of execution, when he saw the testimony that James was sharing, was moved. And the one who was leading James to the place of being executed became himself also a Christian. And they were both, therefore, he said, led away together. And on the way, he begged James to forgive him. Now, this is the James who called down, wanted to call down fire from heaven. This is the James who wanted to sit at the right hand of Jesus. The one taking him to the executioner is so moved by the compassion and the passion of James that and he, he confesses Jesus and he, he becomes a Christian And then he turns to James and he asks for forgiveness for having to take you to the executioner. And the historian writes, after considering this, he said, peace be with you. And James kissed him on the cheek. And they were both beheaded at the same time. And then John MacArthur writes this. In the end, James had learned to be more like Andrew, bringing people to Christ 
instead of itching to execute judgment. May that be us. May we be more passionate about bringing people to Jesus, even if it costs us everything, than about making people live right, behave right, and act right, and do what we want them to do. And we see that total change. And why was that change? It was because of Jesus Christ. If you want to love people more, love Jesus more. If you want to be a better husband and love your wife more, love Jesus more. If you want to be a better parent and love your children more, love Jesus more. If you want to love the people who speak, I I had something on Twitter, I I think I deleted it, but uh, first time it's ever happened to me, I was listed as a Southern Baptist leader. So there you go. I was listed and it was a tweet and it was a pretty hateful tweet, all right? We've got a lot of people out there who don't like us and they don't know me, but somehow or another they connected me. And so I was listed with a lot of other people on that. And, and when I went to look at the, at the, the, the Twitter place, the, the, the man who owned the, his, his theme was hate or be hated. That was his theme. And so there's a lot of people out there who truly hate us. And you want to love people who hate you? Love Jesus more. You want to love people who don't treat you well? Love Jesus more. And so what we see in in James is one who, as he saw the way Jesus behaved, as he saw the way Jesus loved people, as he saw the way Jesus laid down his life a ransom for many, it changed him to the point that he was no longer trying to, as as John MacArthur says, he was no longer trying to, to, to bring retribution on people, but to bring people to Jesus. And may that be the truth of us, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. None but him. There's no other way. You know how we should feel about people who reject Jesus? How we should feel about people who speak violently about us and and vehemently about us and about what we believe? Don't be angry with them. Don't be like James and John and think they ought to get their comeuppance. Because here's the reality. There'll become a day The 50 and the 50, the two groups who were consumed by fire in Elisha's day were consumed. But those who reject Jesus and his truth, Jesus says, will be thrown into a lake of fire for all eternity. And I don't care how angry somebody is at you. I don't care how ugly they are to you. I don't care how much they seem to hate us and wish that we weren't here. Some even would like to do us physical harm and perhaps some would even like to kill us. We need to look at them with compassion because their future is tragic if they don't know Jesus. We need to have that kind of compassion for them because without Christ, there is no hope of of life the absolute foot of the throne of God, enjoying his glorious grace forever, but rather there's eternity as an object of God's wrath forever, and there's nothing in between. And it's a serious decision we need to make. And we spend so much time thinking about what our life is like here on this earth. And, and James, the brother of Jesus, not this James, but James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote his little epistle, said, your life is like a fog. It's like a vapor. It's over before it begins. But eternity never ends. 
And I know that James and John realized after Jesus' death, listen, after his death, burial, and resurrection, after they saw him ascend to heaven, after they realized that the presence of the Holy Spirit came in the upper room that night, I know they realized that, they are, that their life here on earth really mattered little. All that mattered was what waited for them in heaven. And so their whole priority shifted and everything changed. Would be to God that our priorities would shift and that we would see that we are created, as, as, as Henry Blackaby says, not not for time, but for all eternity. We're going to be around for all eternity. Are you going to spend it as an object of God's love and affection, or are you going to spend it as an object of God's wrath? And if you, because of the grace of God, repent of your sin and call Jesus your Lord, he will put your name in the Lamb's book of life. He'll create a home for you. He'll build a room for you in his own home. He'll come again and receive you, that where he is, you will be also, and you will enjoy unbelievable joy, and you'll never sin again. You'll never want to sin again. It'll be, that's, that's our inheritance. It'll be for all eternity. So what difference does it make here on earth who lives in a bigger house who has more money, who gets a little more privilege, what people may say about us, how our enemies may treat us, that is so temporary compared to our inheritance. And that is what James began to understand. And that wonderful story of Clement of Alexandria, how James, his passion for Jesus was so evident that even the one taking him to his execution came to know Christ and they were executed together. What a difference, right, between the two Jameses. And what's the difference? It's how they learned from Jesus. The difference in your life and my life, to be the better husband, the better wife, the better parent, the better friend, the better employee, the better church member, isn't that you work harder at it, it's that you love Jesus more, and you seek him more, and you find your joy in him. And if you do that, you'll want to be more like him. How many times have you seen a little toddler see his dad's shoes sitting in the hallway or the living room? And what's that little toddler do? He puts his feet in those shoes and he tries to walk in his dad's shoes. Usually he falls down, they fall off. It's not, it's not very pretty. But your heart is drawn to that. Why? Because you realize how much that little boy wants to be like his dad. The more you love Jesus, the more you want to be like him. The more you spend time with him, the more you want to be like him. And if you're not gone to heaven yet, (laughs) there's a reason for you to be here. And it's quite simply this. It's to glorify God and be a witness and be an example to others. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, be sure to subscribe to our show so the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready whenever you are. And secondly, if Grace Family has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description and make a donation now. And we'll see you next time on the Grace Family Podcast.